game, good game. What you got in there? In here? Doom. Hey everyone, welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. At least we are most of the time. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We are doing a book club episode about a non-tennis subject, Doom Guy, Life in First Person by John Romero. John Romero is a video game programmer that came to prominence through his work on seminal first-person games released in the 1990s for PC, most notably Doom, Wolfenstein 3D, and Quake. He is also notable for funding the development team that made what for me, even in 2023, remains the greatest game of all time, Deus Ex. That game does not happen without John Romero cutting the check for Warren Spector's team. And he's also notable for, around that same time, the troubled development and release of Daikatana. More recently, he has gone back to designing levels for the original Doom games. So Doom is a video game that was released in 1993 for MS-DOS. It achieved immediate notoriety at the time as one of the most well-crafted, fast-paced games of its era. Its technical achievements, its sort of player experience achievements, the flow of it, the cultural significance of it, both what it took culturally as an inspiration from the 80s and the culture it would go on to generate over the next 30 years. This is not a programming book, which I was grateful for. If he did too much programming jargon in the book, you sort of lose the general audience, which is why there's not a whole lot of programming talk in here. It's not a analysis book either. In other words, it doesn't have, you know, this page we cover Doom Level 1 and what how it was made and all this, and the next page we cover Level 2, and the next page we cover Level 3. It, it's not like that. It's not written as an encyclopedia or as a guide or as a manual. Doom Guy is written as a um, narrative. It's a narrative book, and... This is probably the correct choice because it makes it the most accessible to a casual audience and it makes it nice to read even for the the hardcore audience that definitely has picked up the book and read it already, people like myself. I do believe that you should absolutely go buy this book. I absolutely recommend Doom Guy Life in First Person. Even if you are a casual fan, there are general takeaways from this book that I'm going to get into a little bit later. But for now, let's get into uh, part one. Romero was born in Colorado Springs, but grew up um, in his early childhood in Tucson, Arizona. He has multiple heritages. He's of mixed heritage. He's part Mexican. He's part Yaqui. And he is part Cherokee. And... Um, His mom's side only spoke English, and his dad's side did speak Spanish, but they did not teach him how to speak Spanish, because his father's side of the family believed that in order to be more properly integrated into Arizona, that John needed to learn only English. The defining characteristic of the early part of this book 
is John Romero's relationship with his dad. And it is one that was complicated. A lot of this relationship that Romero talks about, it tracks with what I have seen in my work with Native students and Native families that I've either done or seen. The stereotype that there's a lot of drinking by adults in that community is proved to be true in this book. I can't say I've ever witnessed that personally, but I can say personally the poverty and the strife that is stereotypical of that community. In my experience, I have seen a lot of that, and it is true. And it definitely had an impact on Romero. And that gets me to the first clip that I want to read here. When my dad came home, he went inside. From outside, we could hear the fight brewing. Que paso? My dad wanted to know what the hell had happened. What happened? Look at this place. Your damn dinner is on the floor. It's just rice and beans. They must have been having fun. My dad was unpredictable. Something like this could set off his temper or make him laugh. My mother was having none of it. Fun? I'm an expert in fun. Fun is being here all day long with two little boys while you're out drinking. Fun is going to your mother to ask for chicken so that we have something to eat. Fun is you working all night and coming home six beers into the day and me trying to keep these kids quiet so you can sleep. The fridge door opened and shut, and we heard my father crack open a new beer. Get rid of them, my mom yelled. I've had enough for today. My dad slammed the door and headed back toward the driveway. Mijos, he called. Get in, the, get in the truck. I opened the passenger door to the cab and helped Ralph climb in. Ralph was his brother. He was four, and I was six. The truck veered off the highway and onto a dirt road. We drove into the Sonoran Desert, the hottest terrain day, out, er, day in, day out in the entire country. He pulled the truck to a stop and said, Get out. I got out first and then helped Ralph climb down. I looked at the cab, waiting for my father to join us, but that didn't happen. Instead, he leaned over, grabbed the door, and slammed it shut. We waited for his instructions, but there were none. My dad put the truck in gear and pulled a U-turn. He was not looking at me. His eyes were on the road, and he was driving away. I watched the pickup vanish out of sight. We started to walk back toward the highway. It was hot, but being six, I was blessed with naivete. It's only when I got older that I realized just how many ways this could have gone wrong. As an educator, this makes me genuinely angry for all the reasons that you might think. But uh, that's a lot of what Romero's early life was like. There came a time in his around his early teenage years when uh, Romero's dad left and never came back. And uh, long story short, um, Romero gets a, a stepfather. Romero's mom goes to see somebody else. This, this gentleman's name is John Shunemon. Hope I'm saying that right. And eventually they move to California um, Shunamon is a guy that works in the military, and he relocates often. And Shunamon had a deep resentment of Romero's biological dad, and to a certain extent saw John himself as an extension of that, and was perhaps biased against him a little bit. However, Romero definitely says that he had a much more positive experience with Shunamon, even if he could be a hard-ass as well. Um, around this time, Romero starts talking about his interest in arcades that were in the uh, Northern California burbs, basically. I don't know if he ever calls them suburbs, but I'm going to call them that. Um, 
and then Romero talks about, you know, this is his kind of early interest in video games, especially Pac-Man was an early inspiration to him. Um, he tells a story about how John Shunamon, his stepfather, forbade him from playing arcade games at certain times, and one day Shunamon caught Romero at an arcade and punched him in public in front of other kids. Uh, and, you know, obviously, as an adult, that is very problematic, you know, feeling the need to punch a child in the face, especially one that's your stepson. Um, during this time, Romero also talks about a friendship that he made with a friend, Rob, and how they had an early interest in Apple II computers, um, 6502 assembly language, um, things of that nature. Um, in 10th grade, the family moved to England because John Shunemon was reassigned. So for a couple of years, Romero lived in Alkenbury, England, at the Royal Air Force Base in Cambridgeshire. Um, in the classes Romero was going to take there about programming, uh, he was too advanced. So instead of going to school there, the Air Force offered him a job. Just to read a small excerpt here, this is from page 48. Quote, In 1983, the average adult had no real idea about computers. I was so far ahead of the curve that I wasn't just a novelty, I was an in-demand rarity. And around this time, uh, Romero started sending in his video game submissions to magazines that would print them or publish the literal code that you had to input into your computer to get the game running, or sometimes there would be uh, disc-based releases. So after they graduated high school, or after he did, Romero went back to the States. Romero spends time briefly at Utah Tech in Salt Lake City, but that does not go very well. He's put into the wrong classes. He feels like school was not advanced enough for him, which it wasn't. Just as a little aside here from me, it sounds like Romero's life was not impacted positively very much by education. You know, as, a, as an educator myself, sorry about that, John, but he was probably on the upper end of the upper end of whatever a talented and gifted program would have looked like at that time. He, he was probably too smart for school, just to be blunt, given how much time is spent in public schools catering to the average or to the mean, or to, just to be quite honest, to the below average. Um, so, sorry about that, John. You transcended the system. In November of 1987... He joins Origin Software, and he is now in the industry. Um, and he, Romero talks in this section about how he really enjoyed his interview with Origin Systems, how meeting other programmers for the first time was something that had never really happened to him before, uh, how much he embraced it and how little pressure he felt because he felt like he was among his own kind. In a, sh in a short period of time, Romero works for a variety of companies. I think he only worked at his first job at Origin in seven months. Then he worked at a failed startup. And then he eventually ended up with a job at Softdisk, which is a subscription games company that used to be based in Shreveport, Louisiana. And um, something that was interesting to me about interested me about this part of the book was how often Romero changed jobs early in his career and how that seemed to be acceptable, how he seemed to be okay with that, and how that might even be desirable, or a lot of the times he pushed for it to happen, he said stuff, or he took risks that intentionally did this, he wanted to do it. And that was really interesting to me. I'm kind of the opposite. 
At this time, John Romero is working at Softdisk, the Shreveport, Louisiana games company. He is making games for them. Well, it's not it's not just a games company. It's a company that does stuff, including making games. But anyway, one of the other guys working there, or that they got to come work there with them, was a programmer named John Carmack. And uh, Carmack would go on to become a programming, an engine programmer genius, to put it mildly and to understate that. But it, but anyway, but anyway um, they've been working on a Super Mario Brothers clone. They've been working on the technology to side-scroll like a Mario-type game would be. I had glimpsed at my future my colleague's future, and the future of PC gaming, and that future was phenomenal. Moments before losing my capacity to utter a single word, I had arrived early to an empty Gamer's Edge office, that's what, that's what, that's what their division was called, to find a 3.5-inch floppy disk on my keyboard with a note from Tom Hall instructing me to run the program on the disk. I inserted the floppy. I was greeted with a brown title screen announcing Dangerous Dave in Copyright Infringement. A familiar video game lit up on my PC screen. I was looking at a replica of Super Mario Bros. 3. The billowing white cloud characters, the green shrubs, the construction blocks, and rotating gold coins. But Super Mario didn't exist on the PC because the technology that powered it didn't exist on the PC. You know how in Star Wars, when the, when the Millennium Falcon goes into warp speed and the stars start whizzing by? That's how I felt. Teleported into the future. After about 30 minutes of sitting there in silence, I finally got my act together and decided to show a few people this revolutionary breakthrough. I took the floppy disk down the hall to my friends at Big Blue Disk, another division, booted it up, and waited for people to freak out. That's really neat. Nice, how funny. That's cool. I couldn't believe it. I was waving a paradigm-shifting demo before their eyes, and they couldn't see it. In the world of programming, Dangerous Dave and Copyright Infringement was like a coding version of the Rosetta Stone. It was like E equals MC squared. It was like nuclear fusion. Instead, they told me it was, quote, neat. This surprised me even more. Are you serious? Neat? This is incredible, I said. It was all I could do not to go on a rant. These were people who lived and breathed computer programming, who understood and were invested in the PC revolution. They should have been saying, that is fucking amazing. As for Carmack, I found out he called part of his innovation adaptive title refresh. He didn't see it as anything to shout Eureka about. I suspect he viewed the inability to side-scroll on PCs as a functional programming and graphics conundrum. It seemed to me that they, Carmack and Hall, had missed the forest for the trees, both of them. I was still in awe. This is massive, I told them. Revolutionary. This is it. We are gone. And that's the end of that excerpt. To make a long story short, eventually they leave their contracted job at Softdisk to form a, a startup named id software id software is founded in 1991 i think it was and that first year is characterized by the small development team making a lot of games in a short amount of time on a death crunch schedule. Um, the, Romero talks endearingly about working 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day and having his entire life, you know, at the expense of his personal life, you know, his entire life was coding, pizza, and soda. And he speaks of that time very fondly. And throughout this period, and up through the release of 
Wolfenstein and Doom about how everybody was mind-melding, everybody was trying to do the absolute best job they could, everyone was trying to be the best, and how it was all great in this part of their lives when they were in their 20s. So in that first year, they made 12 or 13 games. A couple of those were to satisfy the remaining obligations they had with soft disk, which they kept for a while after going independent. And um, their most notable early release were their Commander Keen games, particularly episodes 4 and 5, Commander Keen in Goodbye Galaxy. And of those, especially episode 5, the Armageddon Machine, which is probably the best Commander Keen game. Um, after this, they decided to not do any more Keen games because in just a couple of years span, they made six Commander Keen games. So they decided to go in a different direction. They wanted to do a 3D shooter game. They were thinking about concepts. They decided to revive the old Castle Wolfenstein property from the 80s. And uh, there were two games that were, were released previously. And because it was the third game, they named it Wolfenstein 3D. And uh, they released it in May of 1992 to great uh, financial success and critical acclaim during this period. They started in Shreveport. They moved to Madison, Wisconsin. They were there for a while. Then during the development of Wolf 3D, they moved to Dallas, Texas, which is a video game hub where the company remains to this day. Let's listen to a contemporary news report about the 1992 release of Wolfenstein 3D. They say all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. But there are a lucky few who get to play at work and make it pay. In fact, Apple Computer was put on the map by a couple of young men employing just such a strategy. Now a similar story may be unfolding near Dallas. Byron Harris reports. It's three-dimensional. It's texture map. It's Wolfenstein, one of the hottest-selling computer games in the world in which B.J. Blastowitz storms a Nazi bunker in search of Adolf Hitler. The game is the creation of John Romero and five other computer whizzes who comprise a company called id Software. Together with another firm called Apogee Software, Romero and his co-workers have parlayed a love of computers and computer games into a multi-million dollar business. This year, Apogee, which sells software, and id, which creates it, will gross close to $5 million, up from $6,000 two years ago. 31-year-old Scott Miller and 29-year-old George Broussard, who own Apogee, discovered a breakthrough in marketing computer games. They sell directly to the public. But first, they give away part of the games they sell through a service called Shareware. We take a, uh, a larger game and break it into several smaller parts, and we put the first part out in Shareware so that people can try it and see if they like it. And if they do, they can order the rest of them back through us. Apogee's first big seller was called Commander Keen, a game about an eight-year-old genius who makes a spaceship out of household items and saves the planet. The game was created by id Software, which has a special touch for success. The people we've recruited are, for the most part, people who have had a background in game playing. That's, that's, they have to have programming skills, but they, on top of that, they need to be game players. This is id Software headquarters. John Romero and partner Jay Wilbur are hard at work playing games. They consider it research. When the latest game comes out, that's real cool new technology. We're already way past that because of the research we've been doing during the development of the game. One of the reasons for Wolfenstein's success is texture mapping, a technique for giving surfaces realistic texture. That quality did not come easily is achieved by clever programs which squeeze the most out of a computer's components. Despite the frivolity at id, it's a lot of 16-hour days by programmers, artists, and designers that make the game successful. And the place does have the magic of a successful enterprise. Work and play here are the same thing. 
Byron Harris, NBR, Dallas. Then for the next project, they decide to start working on Doom. And with the exception of a brief period when they had to deal with a issue with a contractor, again, read about that in the book, they spent most of 1993 working on making Doom. This occupies a surprisingly small section of the book. Um, Romero does not go into uh, quite the uh, insane level of detail that I know he's capable of, but I think he held back a little bit here just to keep it flowing. Um, Nevertheless, there's a a lot of interesting stuff to read about in the in the book about the year they were making Doom. They had to let one of their guys, Tom Hall, go because he was not jiving with the vision. Something that's also really interesting about this is the Usenet groups, which is basically the early message boards and how similar the hype on those early message boards was to something that you would see today. Those Usenet transcripts are actually out there somewhere on the internet. I've seen them in the last couple years. I'm not going to hunt them down now, but um, they're definitely out there. A couple things I want to play. Um, this is this is A Visit to Id Software. This was filmed in November of 1993, a week before, or I'm sorry, a month before Doom was released. The voice you can hear talking here in the background is uh, John Romero, and the voice in the foreground is the guy with the camera. So this is A Visit to Id Software, November, November 1993. Launcher. Wow, loaded. <laughs> Love those graphics. Oh, watch this thing. Great, it blew up. Whoa. Oh, thanks. But something interesting in this first room. I like this song, too. This is a cool song. Okay, he's coming over to me. Okay, he's bam, bam, boom, bits. Oh, Blew them both the bits. <laughs> oh, hey, you know what I noticed? Oh, okay, good, he did. He, the shotgun guy that blew the bits left his shotgun there. <laughs> so you wait for these guys to get next to one of these cans, and you shoot the can next to them, and they blow into the ball pieces. Because the cans are really bad. Or you hit him with a missile. That's definitely more of a visual type video, but even just in that small moment there, you can definitely uh, hear some interesting things. And Runaway Success, huge mega hit, uh, huge financial windfall for Romero and everybody else on the team. At this point, the company was making millions and the individual guys were making over 100000 a year. You know, they expressed it by buying fancy cars and all the rest of that stuff. Romero expressed some hesitation in the book uh, for maybe not saving as well as he could have, but he defends himself by saying they were in their 20s and they were hit with this kind of unexpected success. So, Doom 2, massive success. The most interesting to me the most interesting thing to me during this part was the case study of the development of Quake. And this led to the eventual splintering of the studio. Basically, Quake was too big of a project to have work with the model that they started with. With their team of five guys, five, six, seven guys, whatever... That worked. 
to make the technology and the design for Wolfenstein 3D. It worked for the original Doom. It worked for Doom 2. But the ambition for the technology with Quake was to go full 3D. And, you know, just for the people listening, in Doom, the enemies are not 3D models. They're 2D drawings in a 3D space. But for Quake, it was the 3D space and the enemies were actually 3D models as well for the first time. And that required a new engine paradigm, a new technology standard, and that took far longer to develop than the previous technology had. And half the team, half the team was working on that. John Carmack, Michael Abrash, and I think one other guy. And the other half of the team was essentially sitting there doing nothing, just making experimental levels that were not meant to ship with the final product. And Romero talks about how uh, John Carmack was not happy during this time. Where's the book? Even with the engine's progress, we knew Carmack was feeling the pressure. His brain was exceedingly taxed. He worked constantly, took no vacations, slept only when necessary, and had become occasionally irritated with those not directly working on the engine team. Just how irritated he felt became evident when we arrived one morning, opened our mail, and discovered, of all things, this. Report card. The report card listed each team member along with their assigned grade on Quake. I got a C. What in the hell is this? I thought. Let me provide some critical perspective here. Much has been written about our working relationship and our eventual breakup. It's written as if we were 50-year-old Stanford MBAs who knew everything about business and not overworked, constantly crunching kids in our 20s with the whole world staring at us as we tried to do the best we could while creating a tech and a design that the world had never before seen. It's written in polarizing terms, animosity being a favorite, with one of us pitted against the other, because that just makes for a better story. The truth is, this, and this is me interjecting here, this is a direct shot at the 2003 book Masters of Doom. I'm kind of, inter- I'm kind of interesting that he did not name it by name, especially when Romero does name it by name later in the book. Back to the excerpt. The truth is that Carmack and I were friends, and we cared about each other, and we still do. We talked, we laughed, and like all friends, sometimes we quarreled and took shots at each other. We made great decisions, good decisions, and downright terrible partnership-ending decisions. As you read through all that happened, keep these things in mind. As Carmack stated in a 2022 episode of Lex Fridman's podcast, This chapter of our lives certainly could have gone a different way if we'd been more mature and more experienced and not the 20-somethings we actually were, and I fully agreed. But in August 1995, looking at the report card, I was not concerned with my grade. I had done a ton of stuff that the Quake grade wasn't even taking into account, but I was concerned about him and why he had sent this to everyone on the team. He's under a lot of pressure, I said. That was obvious to all of us, and rather than give him hell about it, we decided to say nothing. For his part, Carmack also never brought it up. Not talking about it wasn't the best decision. He sent that report card out because he needed something. That something wasn't our heads-down silence. What he wanted, I suspect, was for me to dump everything else I was working on, all of it, all the side projects that were bringing in income, and dive 100% into Quake. At the time, that would have meant jumping in on the engine to push it closer to gameplay. How might I handle this today? I can't imagine Carmack sending a report card any more than I can image me not walking into his office and saying, What's going on? Let's talk about this and figure something out. We had been through tough times before, and he and I had always pulled together and gotten it done. It makes me sad to think how he felt sending that and not getting a response. And then, later on, after the Quake tech was finished, this is me talking again here, 
Um, the team basically didn't want to make the game anymore, as originally conceived as an RPG type of game. And instead, they just wanted to make it a Doom-style shooter and get it out the door and moving on to the next project. From that point on, Romero kind of felt that he was done and that his days were numbered. And they worked in silence. They were remodeling the office at that time. And they worked with walls torn down, wires hanging from the ceiling. They worked in silence. The team didn't speak to each other. And it was clear at that point that the magic was lost. And long story short, that ended up in uh, John Romero leaving id Software to make his own company. Um, In retrospect, Romero says that he would have handled the situation differently today. The situation where you had two different teams, one that was under-supported and one that was not doing anything, was incorrect in hindsight. And either the first team should have been given assistance by the second team, or the second team should have been making a Doom 3 to give the company something to release instead of waiting for the protracted Quake development cycle to finish. It's always interesting to compare these uh, video game management stories to just uh, management of any workplace in general. I do think it's interesting. So then Romero leaves id Software in, I think, 1996, it was. Yeah. And he founds his own company, Romero does, called Dream Design, which eventually becomes Ion Storm. Romero gives Warren Spector the cash to make Deus Ex, which goes on to become a a very successful game. Romero's own game, um, Daikatana, and a couple other games he was responsible for, like that Dominion game, do not go as planned. It's extremely mismanaged. Um, The guys Romero put in charge uh, didn't get it done, to put it mildly. What characterized... Romero's time at Ion Storm was distraction. Um, Romero, I think, is a coder and a programmer at heart, and his time at Ion Storm was spent in management, including the management of people that had their own interests at heart instead of the company, like Mike Wilson running the John Romero Wants to Make You His Bitch Daikatana advertisement and trying to start the publishing company Ion Strike behind Romero and Halls' backs. Um, and here's an example of some of the strife that happened during the development of Daikatana. This is page 314. Daikatana's latest build was showing fine, and the press were excited to get some time with it. On the second day of the show, we received a new build of the game via FedEx. I had been expecting it. The level designers wanted to add more action in the environments, and we really wanted to make as great a showing as possible. We'd reviewed their plans level by level before I left for California. Excited to get a look at it, we immediately began installation and fired it up. My excitement turned to confusion and then anger. What the fuck is going on? I said to the computer. The game was chugging, practically skipping as I tried to move forward. What the fuck is going on? What the fuck happened? I couldn't understand what I was seeing. We had made our plans so carefully. Why was the game fucking crawling? What changed? I was so upset I don't even remember who I asked to reinstall the stable version of the build. I called Chris Cly, the lead level designer. I trusted Chris implicitly. He was exceptional and detail-oriented, and he knew how important this show was for us. Both he and Stephen Ash, Daikatana's fourth lead programmer, had worked their asses off to deliver to deliver a stable build for the show. As it turned out, once I got Chris on the phone, I realized that he was fuming too. Apparently, Todd, one of the guys in question that was not doing so well, had presented him with a list of changes to be included with the E3 update build. What the fuck? I said. I didn't want Todd anywhere near my game, and I'd certainly provided him no such direction. To make matters even worse, once Chris made the changes he thought I requested, 
Todd took the CD to FedEx before the VIS process on the levels was completed. That more than explained why the maps were running slow. Without VIS, the game was trying to draw the entire map every frame. July 31st, 2001 was our last day at Ion Storm. Tom and I rolled carts of our stuff from the office into the parking lot and loaded up the trunks of our cars. See you tomorrow, he asked. Yeah, I said. I'll see you then. Daikatana and Ion Storm are cautionary tales of a game that still somehow made it out the door and of a company that could not survive its many challenges. People have asked me for years what went wrong. The answer, in a literal word, is me. If nothing else, writing this book has been a transformative process. It has allowed me to see patterns that have followed and defined me, patterns I may not otherwise have seen. As a child, when things got bad, out of necessity, I stayed quiet and waited for it to pass. When Carmack sent out his report card, I stayed quiet and waited for it to pass. When people were upset at things happening within Ion Storm, I stayed quiet and waited for it to pass. Everything that happened at Ion Storm is a direct result of that flaw in my character. Had I taken action, had I talked to people, had I prevented issues from developing when they were just emerging, so many things in my career and in my life would have been different, and so many people would have been spared the difficulties this flaw created. In particular, at Ion Storm, I should have taken action regarding the team's issues with people in positions of leadership when people first asked me to, instead of letting it go on. In the end, that caused the teams a lot of stress and cost me a lot of time away from Daikatana. Both paid the price. I also never should have approved the, notor the notorious bitch ad or allowed the hype train to leave the station. If I had to sum it all up as a business lesson, this is it. Don't let problems magnify. Deal with issues as soon as they arise. Problems always magnify over time. Don't hype what you don't have. Never insult your fans, even in jest. Trust your gut instinct. If you think something is wrong, there's probably a reason, even if it's not obvious. Though in the case of the bitch ad, it was obvious. Make sure people are treated well. Games do not make themselves. Focus on the fun. Games do not design themselves. Surround yourself with good people and give them what they need to make something great. Find a way to support someone, like a video game publisher, who wants to make something else great, even if that something else is without you. Vet your founders because you will face highs, lows, and challenges together. Fail gracefully. Failure is a part of games, a part of life, and a part of success. Accept your flaws, reload your save, and try again. And that is one of the parting lessons there for you from Doom Guy Life in First Person by John Romero. There's a couple chapters after that talking about what he's been doing more recently, but that's the gist of the book. In the early days of id, when, when Romero was in his heyday the first time, he liked doing the crunch. He glorified the crunch. He wanted to work 16 hours a day. He liked working 16 hours a day. Carmack likes working 16 hours a day, even today, apparently. It was something they embraced, and it was something that they claimed made them great. And in 2023, we live in the work-life balance era where people are constantly trying to work less or people glorify working less, and working hard is not glorified. Today, working hard is vilified in many quarters. And for me, it was just interesting to see the pendulum 
swing the other way for once. And it just makes me think back to all the hours I put into music in high school and college. Those hours have allowed me to be in my current situation. My 12 and 16 hour days helped me in my career. So maybe if you like doing and I lo- and I loved doing it then, just like Romero did when he was doing it. Maybe crunch is okay if you like doing crunch. Whatever your personal crunch is to you. And you know, there just again for the people listening, like go look up Cyberpunk 2077. Go look up the crunch on that game. Just type in video game crunch, and there's a lot of stories out there about uh, about that. But if it's done right, if it's done in a small five-person team, or if it's done for you personally as an individual, maybe there is something worthwhile in there. And I think being defined by your work in a good way is definitely a desirable thing. That's my large-scale takeaway from this. My game development takeaway, I'm not a game developer, so I'm much less qualified to speak on this. But for me, the most interesting game development story in here, or the most interesting case study, was not the development of Doom. It it, it wasn't even the development of Daikatana. It was the development of Quake. And I, I gave my sort of management take on that a little bit earlier about what the two teams should have been doing. And um, just pausing on that now and reflecting on it, man, that was a uh, consequential period in the development of computer technology, wasn't it? If that had gone another way, think about where we could be today and how different it could be. As a Doom fan, as a hardcore guy that's followed this stuff for years, the actual id software stuff, there was not tomes and tomes of new information in there which makes sense on one hand because it's been so extensively written about in the past however I'm glad that uh, Romero was kind of doing his Paul McCartney Peter Jackson get back thing here he's trying to have his word be the definitive word and the final word and I'm just fine with that the most interesting new stuff in here honestly the most interesting new stuff was Romero's childhood the first part of this book. The second most interesting part was the Ion Storm stuff and post-Ion Storm, the stuff I didn't even get into on this podcast. And the development of id, I, I learned the least new interesting... I learned the least about new stuff in terms of that. Which, again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm definitely grateful for this book. And that gets me into my final word. I absolutely recommend this book for anybody and everybody. If you're a casual that has no idea about any of this, I think there's a there's an appealing story in here about a guy who came from the native culture, which is very difficult to get success out of, especially in a field like computer science. John Romero was a guy that did it. For gamers that might not know too much about FPSs or about older titles. This is an interesting look at history and about how people that work in the biz today worked on these games, and you might not know it, but they influenced the stuff that kids play today in a very direct sort of a way. For Doom fans or id fans, I mean, obviously, you're going to want to buy this because this book is awesome. This book is great. Everyone listening to this should absolutely go read it. And uh, if you don't, I don't know, you might be doomed.